Hello and welcome to Quinescast, Scotland's feminist arts podcast. I am Hannah Lavery. And I am Caitlin Skinner. And welcome to our special bonus episode for Quinescast Season 1. We are joined by some of the incredible women who you'll have heard throughout our series. We've invited them to come along for a roundtable discussion to dig in a little deeper into some of the themes and ideas that came out of the writing they shared as part of the podcast. And we have with us today from our City episode, Denise Mina, author. From Wild, poet Victoria McNulty. From Change, writer Kirsten Innes. And from Success, journalist and author Arusa Qureshi. Hello everyone and welcome. Thank you for being here. Before we get stuck into the discussion, I wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who listened to season one. We've had a great response so far and some things people have said. Inspiring, warm, funny and uplifting in its wonderfully diverse exploration of the theme of city. Loved it, Sarah Jane. And from Rona, who said, um, absolutely what we need now and always. And from Kay, we had an hour of wilderness and righteous anger, rebellion and affirmation of gannets and loss and dodgy feet and wine that tastes funny. Highly recommend it. Thank you everyone who listened, um, who passed it on to other people and who messaged in to tell us how much you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. The full series is still available, uh, so please do share with anyone you think might like to listen. Um, In this episode, we'll be referencing some of the ideas from previous episodes, but don't worry, you don't need to have listened to the whole thing to follow along. Just sit back and enjoy the conversation. So um, to kickstart our discussion today, we've invited each of our guests to come up with a question inspired by the piece of work they wrote for Quinescast. Um, And we will put that question to the rest of our distinguished panel. For our first episode was on the theme of city. And Denise, you kicked us off with a wonderful piece of writing, which I'm still thinking about, about a solo um, trip to New York. Your quest to be the subject of your own story, to see and not to be seen. What I'd love to know is, why do you think being alone in a city is a significant thing for a woman? I think travelling solo, I see the city as a place of liberation for women. The feminist movement didn't really kick off until we had solidarity. For me, the city is solidarity with other women. And so during lockdown, I was thinking about that a lot because I was thinking about all those women who were isolated, sometimes with their abusers, sometimes in unhappy situations. And uh, and it just made me really appreciate the solidarity of that kind of communal space. And it was when women came into cities during industrialization, which we always talk about is really bad. Mm-hmm. But that was when women started to work and get independent money and started to be seen. And uh, so the city for me is a very precious place. And it feels like a very safe place and it feels like a liberation. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really came across in the, the story that you shared the time I forgot I was a woman. Okay, so have you brought a question to start our discussion today on that theme then? Yes. Now, I don't really know what the, these questions are supposed to be like, so it's very subjective and experiential of each of the people here. Does the city feel like a place of safety for you? It's a good one. I'll be a bit terrified I'm going to crush it right away, actually, because it, no, it, it doesn't feel like a particular um, place of safety for me. Uh, I'm from Glasgow. I've lived in Glasgow my whole life. I grew up uh, in a scheme in the East End of Glasgow that was notorious for all the wrong reasons and pretty badly represented in a lot of times as well. So, And then when I was younger, I was working in pubs and things like that as well. I was going to football matches and stuff, and there was always a level of danger to me about being a woman in that community, in that city. And that, and that's to do with class, it's to do with gender. And maybe it's 
perceived threat as well as much as what's actually existing. I don't know, but no, as I get older and maybe my my social capital's held elsewhere than maybe it was when I was a younger woman, I feel a bit more invisible and I'm finally getting to feel a wee bit safer here because I can go about and do what I like to do. But no, I, I don't, I can't say I have an experience where I can say I cities are safe places for women. Uh, I totally agree with you that I think cities generally don't feel like safe spaces for women. But um, what you said, Denise, really resonated about the kind of safety element. I'm from Edinburgh and I was born in Edinburgh and I've lived there my whole life. And I think Edinburgh feels safe to me because it's a familiar place and I've never lived anywhere else. So that is like my safe space. Um, and even though the city itself doesn't always feel safe when you're out and about um, in certain certain spaces, to me personally, it's just that familiarity. Um, but I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because um, I turned 30 this year and I haven't really travelled that much and especially haven't travelled solo. And thinking about going to other cities and whether I'd feel safe, I don't know if I necessarily would by myself. So in that case, you know, I totally agree with what Victoria is saying, that cities in general don't feel like safe spaces for women, especially solo women, even if my home feels safe because it's familiar. Well, I don't live in a city anymore. Um, and having lived in cities in Edinburgh and Glasgow and Aberdeen until I was 35, and now I live in a village. And the community that you were talking about is actually the first time that I've experienced it. Um, you know, I'd lived in tenement flats my whole life and not known the names of the people upstairs and downstairs necessarily because I was moving on every few months or six months or they were. Um, and this was, yeah, it, it's it's taken sort of eight years of living out of a city for me to find that community um, amongst women Um within the area that you live in rather than, you know, one that you create yourself through work or um, or friendships. Um, and no, I, coming back now, when I come back to the city, I, I do not feel safe anymore. I mean, most of the time, if I'm coming into Glasgow of an evening at a weekend and I have to try and uh, brave in the taxi rank back, I had a, a book out in 2021 and um, for the book launch I was trying to get a taxi back to my village because I'd missed the last train and um, I got incredibly frightened um, with this uh, with you know just people around but I wonder if that's just my horizons have got a wee bit smaller now because um, when I was 20 I did actually I spent a summer living and working in Berlin in a kebab shop and selling selling um, hats at Love Parade <laughs> I didn't feel the terror then as a 20-year-old that I do now as a 42-year-old in a city. So maybe that's just me kind of hunkering down a wee bit more. That one of the interesting things that came up in the podcast was the idea of cities being a, you know, offering a sort of intersectional space. And I wondered about when we talk about safety as well as like physical safety, is that safety of being able to be yourself? And I wondered if that was also kind of what you were asking within that question as well? Well, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, I think the responses are so interesting. I read this book called Fat, which is about the notion of fat. And one of the things was 
um, they were all like academic essays. And one of the things was this Swedish psychologist who spent time with girls in Sweden in a school. And she talked about the way girls talked about their bodies. So the girls would say, I'm really fat. And other girls would say, you're not fat. And then an actual fat girl, which I was at school, turned up. This resonated so strongly. And she said, I'm fat. And they were all furious with her because she was not allowed to engage in that discourse. And then she said, and she's fat as well. And then she got shunned from the group. And it was just like all the different ways. But what the psychologist said was... One of the problems with the feminist movement is that we are so used to problematizing the nature of femininity that we can only talk about the negatives and it makes us all exhausted. Do you know what I mean? For me, I came to Glasgow from South London. I mean, I grew up in Berlanark. Do you know what I mean? I was from East Kilbride. But we moved away and when I came back and, and I found the women's library in the city and I found other women who didn't fit in anywhere in the city. And if you move around a lot when you're young, you need to come to the city to meet other people who've had that experience. Otherwise, all you ever get is you don't fit in this group. That's all you get. And I think that's a very common experience. You really have to come to the city to meet other weirdos. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And you find out, like Berlin, you find out where the weirdos in your group are going and you all go to those. We, I've just finished writing something about Savonarola and I don't know if you know this, but Florence was the San Francisco of the Middle Ages. It was where all the gay men went, basically, to meet each other. There was a pub on one side of the Arno River called The Hole. I don't, think can, I don't know if you can keep that in. <laughs> but I was just quite thrilled reading that and I was thinking, you know, there is something about us all being here and being interested in these abstract questions of... Without an answer, there isn't a right or wrong answer to it, but there is the fact that we are all in the same space asking unanswerable questions. For me, as a, a feature of the city and that's uh, that's something that I found in the city. That um, dichotomy that you've highlighted there in the city around having both solidarity and massive people finding your community and also danger and being exposed. And like that, that reminds me of the kind of the thing we're having with social media right at the moment is both those a really dangerous place for women and a massive place of solidarity for the movement. And yeah, that, that just rang really true for me about that exact same problem about big groups of people in one place. Right. Exposing and galvanizing. What do you think we need for women to have greater ownership of the city, to feel safer, to have a say? <gasps> yeah. Imagine that. Imagine if all the men had to stay in after eight o'clock. <laughs> imagine that, seriously. Imagine if men weren't allowed in a fucking taxi queue. But imagine that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, actually think about that. If it is a gender-based problem, think about if all the men had to stay home and had to get chaperoned to make sure they didn't get into trouble. Armed uprising now! <laughs> Lady army around. Well, I definitely think there's something about when you were talking about taxis. Like, you know, do you want to, but like having public transport, like being able to actually get home safely. Well, uh, the, the situation was as well that I'd, I was being really bothered by the man beside me. So I asked the man ahead of me if he wouldn't mind letting me skip the queue. And he joined in with the man on the other side. And it was just like getting it, I was getting really. Kind of yeah, from both both sides, completely unknown, and it seems it seems a bit silly though that I'm pitting that against 35 years of lived experience as my main issue with being in a city. I suppose it's just because I've just come from the Glasgow Central Taxi Rank today, so I'm thinking about it. Is age an issue? Because you were saying that you feel safer as you get older because you feel more invisible. Yeah, I, I, I 
connected a lot with what you were saying about how we, we tie all our problems to our femininity and we kind of... But I do think that perhaps if I think about times where I've not felt safe or I've not been safe, it has been because of my gender, the moving about, if I'm honest. And there's something about when you hit a certain age and you're no longer deemed fuckable, you're all of a sudden entitled to a space at the bar, a space in the crowd. And uh, there's something nice in that, as well as also being like, well, what's wrong with me now? Because I'm over 25. <laughs> no, 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 you can still get your hole, though. Do you know what I mean? And you haven't reached your sexual peak, which is in your 40s. And it's quite nice to know that while also being invisible, I feel. But that all I, th- I do think age is a thing. Who had a, if I get attacked, method? I always had my keys in my fingers. Keys in the fingers. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're taught it from, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's bred into us from, you know, from when we first start going out. I mean, 12, 13 or something, keys in the fingers anytime you were by yourself. 12 and 13 is a bit young for that. I'm thinking maybe it was probably 14, 15, but still, you put your keys and it's, it's one of the things that I can't remember if it was my mum taught me to be that weary and that frightened or it was just other women, hand, well, other girls handing the methods of survival down. So we got the methods of survival, but within that as well, mm. you know, you're taking on that lesson and you're taking on the necessary fright for the flight or fight response. It's so weird that we're all taught different versions of, of this same kind of thing. From a from a very young age, uh, whatever city, or place you live in, um, but just listening to all of you talk, Denise, you said something about um, cities are places for weirdos, which really resonates with me because I've always felt that with places like Berlin. I love Berlin and other cities like that. But very weirdly, like I said, I am from Edinburgh and I've lived there my whole life. The safest I probably feel in Edinburgh is during August in the Fringe, which is shouldn't be the way it is because it's the busiest period. It's when it's so, it's so busy and it's you know by nature dangerous. But I feel safest because it's when lots of other people, people of colour in particular, come to Edinburgh, and it's when I feel like oh, I'm not the only one, and I feel a different sense of safety um, in August in Edinburgh. And yeah, I wondered if anyone else kind of recognise that as well just being in different spaces like cities where you suddenly you find your tribe and you're like oh I feel safe (laughs) but for those of us without a tribe do you know what I mean when you go somewhere that doesn't have that kind of monolithic identity do you know it's just thrilling because you're just kind of like these are all the tribeless people like you go to Berlin or you go to New York or you go to do you know what I mean all those different places that you can go where it's kind of like you don't have to fit in you don't have to have gone to this particular school. You don't have to know everybody. You could just be, you could just rock up and be yourself. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to situate yourself all the fucking time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think I've been craving that actually recently as I'm kind of getting older. And like I said, I haven't travelled much in my life. So I've really been craving going to places like that where I can feel like, okay, everyone's kind of in the same boat and Maybe that's what I need to do this year. <laughs> it feels like this is a really good moment to move on to wildness because it feels like we're talking about wanting to be wild. So we had Victoria is here from the wild episode. Your poetry that you shared with us sort of explored, let me explore those things, but like in the ways in which women are denied, I think, and, and shamed and stripped of their sort of wild and authentic selves. And then wildness is in part for you that rage that inherited rage or the rage that in response to those women that have come before um and I wonder if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about I suppose what it is to be 
an artist, a female artist, a poet who expresses that rage in their work that, that you know, that, that, that uses rage like in your work. And is it still shameful and dangerous to be the angry woman and to be the, the angry female artist? How is that received? I think it, it depends um, who's receiving it. If I'm honest, I think it still can be quite dangerous depending on what you're raging against. I've certainly came up against not even just kind of kickback, but actual blanket. You'll not be seeing that tonight or you'll not be performing that. But at the same time, I've performed in spaces where they've been really welcome to hearing that perspective. I don't really know why that is. I don't know if it's sometimes the subject matter. It's still stuff that, you know, if you're talking about gender or class or sectarianism in Scotland that it still subconsciously rubs people the wrong way or if it's just you know people have to justify their choices to funders and producers and they're just a wee bit like please don't do your class or poem today thank you <laughs> do you know what I mean I don't know because for all it might be a, a, a dangerous space to be professionally if you see it professionally I can't imagine making art without it Everything that I make comes from that knot in my stomach. I sometimes wish I couldn't. I wish I could write tenderly or, or, or even be funny. Sometimes I would like to just be one of the funny poets, but it's just no me. I certainly feel it. I feel it all the time where you're weighing up these things of, can I say that? Should I say that? Is that going to come back on me? How will it reflect on me? But how much I care about it, I'm not sure. It definitely feels like there's something really like, I mean, I love your work so much, but and I love your performances so much. And I just think there's something really um, powerful about seeing a woman who embraces that rage and anger and not ashamed of it. It feels like there's a lot more ability for a man to do that. Than, and I think there's, so I'm just, I'm just really interested in you as an artist. So I, I got into poetry when I was slightly older. Um, I, I was in my late 20s. I was a mum. I started uh, as a hobby and then it kind of just sort of spiralled and, and it, it was my place where I could say what I meant. It wasn't the school ground, it wasn't my other parents, it wasn't in my mum's house. Maybe that's why I gave less of a fuck because that meant so much to have that. Whereas if I'd started out like maybe left school and decided I was going to be a writer and started on that path young and then kind of aimed to that, I would have been more measured in that rage because that's probably the sensible thing to do. But no, that that was why I'd done it because I thought I can I can lance this, spoil the night. This is my thing. Oh, wow. Um, if you haven't heard the the episode, I really encourage you to do that because uh, Victoria's performance is, and, and her poetry is just incredible. And uh, But I wanted to turn to you, Victoria, to see the question that you might have for the rest of us to talk about. Yeah, I think when I, I listened to everybody else's stuff back, actually, I realised that we were all talking about the same thing in a different way. We were all talking about how we claim our authentic self and the space we're in, whether it's politically or you know, in a, an urban setting or, or whatever. And I just wondered, I mean, without the obvious answers, where does that come from? How can so many people be asked to do a different assignment and say the same stuff? <laughs> do you know? Well, I was thinking when I listened to everybody's, I was, I was really struck as well by the similar themes, how a lot of people were discussing a kind of a family history that when we were kind of called on to think about ourselves and write as women we were locating ourselves in a a kind of a, a genealogy so you'd mentioned your your grandma and your granddad and there was 
the amazing poems that you did and, and, and Marjorie's as well about her female relatives coming, you know, crossing over. But there was just that kind of idea where all of us were kind of considering other women around us in some way in order to write that piece. I found it quite difficult. I like writing fiction. I don't like writing stuff that directly relates to me. And I, I really found it quite difficult to be putting big chunks of actual first person me out there and, and especially performing it. But I did find it really interesting that all of us, everybody kind of situated themselves within not necessarily a community, but a network of other women in some way um, in order to discuss their own experience. What an interesting question. Do you know, I think the way we speak about ourselves as women is so formed by, I don't know, an imagined mum or something. I don't know. I think the good woman is always looking after other people. And that for me is so profound. And I think it's crippling and also to be lauded. We situate ourselves amongst other women as a way of saying, please don't kill me. <laughs> for being weird and angry and having a career mm. and kids and also, you know, enjoying my physicality, all the stuff that you're not supposed to do. I don't know, but I think that situatedness, I think there is a thing about good women are looking after, are performatively looking after other people all the time. And I think it's very difficult for women because I think that's one of the commonalities is that we all put ourselves in a group or in a lineage one of the things that's very, very difficult for women to do and actually was touched upon in success a wee bit is just to say, I'm going to fucking do this. Even if people feel very uncomfortable about me doing something very successful and appearing to be a bit of a notice box and stand out from the crowd, the only way you can actually justify that is to say, other girls are coming behind me. That's in my head. I'm not saying to other people. But the only way I can fucking justify being a writer, because that's in my family, having a job for a woman is massive. Making money as a woman, having opinions and being successful is mortifying. And you need to be fucking sweary and, <laughs> do you know, a, a difficult person to, to say, I'm writing 15 fucking novels, fuck you. Do you know what I mean? No, I'm not going to do one and then shut up and then disappear into having 17 children. I'm not doing that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I think situating yourself in a lineage and in a group is a way of asking people to forgive you. I'm not not in the, the tribe. I'm still in the tribe. Don't hate me for being so fucked up I'm extraordinary. <laughs> no, amen to all of that. <laughs> totally, totally with you there. You know, this theme of being wild, I think... Yeah, I think I feel like it's more accepted for, for men to be while it's more encouraged and more like a kind of mysterious, interesting thing. <laughs> Whereas for us, it's, it's different. Victoria, I loved your poems. I thought they were so wonderful. And just what you were saying about kind of embracing rage and anger. I'm all for that. And I feel like in my daily life, I always tell people, yes, embrace the anger, embrace the rage. But then actually thinking about it, I don't think I'm very good at that, even though I, I preach that myself. Uh, I think I'm pretty bad at like confrontation. I think I'm pretty bad at just dealing with things head on. And and part of the reason I think going back to this like familial kind of lineage uh, theme is because I was taught not to do that growing up because I was worried about being labelled like the the angry woman of colour, which happens so much to so many people. Um, and I think it was a kind of drilled into me not to be difficult and not to be you know, visibly angry and visibly 
embracing that rage as much as I want to do that. And I feel like that that's never going to leave my, my brain as much as I wanted to. We're all kinds of wrong because of history, because history has told us that. And we're, we're now trying to undo all of that and relove ourselves all of our wrongs because historically we've that's what we have been. But that, and also the thing about what one in the episode in Wild, what one of the I'm trying to remember who said it, but I think it was in the, the discussion group when someone talked about how wild for men is like an adventure, but wild for women is always always about being hysterical or being slightly and and I, that really struck me when you were all talking. It was this idea about, you know, wildness is actually for women it's always there's no room for it, there's no place for it, there's no um, uh, yeah, I wondered about what you might think about that. I um, I loved Victoria's anger and those poems. I was I was listening again on the train as I was coming in, and I was just kind of giving the face to everybody around me. It's like, um, but I was I was thinking as well about that idea of um, a thing that's being talked about more recently as kind of maternal rage, that postnatal depression is a nice sort of little box that just in pleasure a wee bit sad it's called the baby blues um and I got hit really badly with it twice but it didn't come in the form of just being sad it, you know both times full-on anger and rage that I'd never had in those hormonal levels before um that I medicated myself out of immediately and felt ashamed of rather than trying to work with in some way I don't know if anybody those just those sort of switches of emotion it's obviously not the same as your experience, but I, I find being a mother rage-inducing, yeah. see if I'm honest. that It's like, you know, I, I love my son and I love being his mum and he, he's so much in my life, but at the same time I'm like, no, I, I want to be able to go out and not have to think about when I come back. I want to put my phone off. I want to be a bad mum and not be judged for it. So see that maternal rage, the minute you said it, I was like, oh, I feel like every day. <laughs> Every day in the oh, school so run, much. but then obviously you've had that experience too. And you say, as you say, you package it up, and it's like you've got baby blues. You know, it's a it's a justified response to a life altering role. And yeah, and we talk about it as if it's hormonal, but actually, it may well be a healthy response to a situation that is ludicrous because we are all living an individual. You sh we should have more support than that. We should have school buses. Do you know what I mean? This, why have we not got school buses? That's mental. And, uh, um, you know, why are we all schlepping to school three times? Do you know what I mean? And it finishes at 3.30. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. That's crazy. But, um, you know, we individuate it and then it's just your physicality is problematic. Yeah. But that individuation of rage, uh, you know, I mean, I think when you meet other women, but you have to sort of trawl through the playground to find the other really angry women. <laughs> <laughs> takes about 10 or 15 other mums sometimes but isn't it it's so interesting about how much times we talk about um you know like the, the being that we almost have to be broken and we have to be it's a mental health thing and actually quite a lot of the times I, I've been thinking this a lot about the way in which we talk about as women get older and the way we talk about menopause that as well that sometimes I think some of this rage is about being becoming invisible or the lack of opportunity or the way in which so some of it feels like actually maybe this is we we don't know how to 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 have to be angry. We don't know how to be wild with our kind of in that way that we have to somehow. Oh, I'm, I've got a mental health, or it's yeah. Rather than just the fact that having two small children who will not get out of the bath and will not put their clothes on and are asking you lots of random questions and running about is enraging. It is to have to deal with that. 
nonstop all day, every day. And yeah, yeah. it is enraging and you're knackered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what sort of, you know, there's always the sort of aphorism, oh, it takes a village, we've all become too atomised, you know. I wonder in the past, you know, how did how did those mythical communities where children were reared in community, how did they, did they just pass the kids on to another person at a time? So my mum lived, my mum was part of a very big family and they all lived up and down the street in Rutherglen and it was like all tenements, so they all had like single lines and if a sister was overwhelmed with her children, she would drop them off at another sister's. Um, but, and, and I think that worked really well to a certain extent, but then I think they, everybody kind of did quite well. Some of the aunties got to university as adults and then they all ended up living in individual houses and they just didn't have that kind of support anymore. Bell Hooks talks a lot about that, actually. She talks about when she was growing up, she was growing up in an African-American community. A lot of the mums were single mums, were all working mums. So she had loads of aunties that weren't her aunties. Um, and exactly what you've just described, I'm going to work now, you need to... And she said that... As a woman, she learned from her elders. She learned her own history. She made connections with other women, cross-generational connections. And as you've just said, the minute we move out of that, you're on your own. And we're encouraged to live in that box as a family. And maybe our understanding of family is wrong. Like you say, your 15 sisters in a street is maybe a much more sensible way to rear children. It's capitalism, isn't it? It's like, the, you know, this will benefit you if you've got a bit of lawn. How? How is that? Be- you haven't got anybody that can take your wains if you're late. How does that benefit anybody? Do you know what I mean? This is also that interesting that the way about patriarchy as well. It's about make women so like completely make child rearing so overwhelming and so like everything has to focus on them and if that you don't actually have room for yourself. Like if you're a good mother, there's no room for you. And so there's something about it's keeping not overwhelming women- if you do it very badly. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Kirsten, you wrote in our uh, change episode, you wrote the provocation piece and I think you captured that really brilliantly actually that the contrast between dealing with the immediate rage that's right in front of you and then also all the overwhelming information we have about other things that we ought to be angry about and and you, you called for us to find a way to not be saturated in outrage that's make us collaborate. If we pause to bear witness to everything, do we perhaps miss our moment to make change? That was your fantastic provocation. And you articulated so beautifully that common feeling of being overwhelmed and paralysed by the world and, and also about living within a small community. And I thought when listening that there was something, is there something in the community and local action which can be a way to escape that paralysis? And and I, I wondered what you thought about that. Yes, um, it's also exhausting because um, what Denise was saying, there's no anonymity. Um, everybody lo- knows your business and if they don't like what you have been doing, it will be spread all over the, the local Facebook page. Um, <laughs> there's a community project that uh, both of us have been involved in as a, a sort of a to get a community larder. And um, it's all about supermarket waste instead of a food bank, which was in Renfrew, which is quite far away from our village. This was a site in the village where anybody could come, no questions asked. The food is um, supermarket excess produce, so it has to be used that day. And then there, there's become a whole situation where one of the local shopkeepers has launched this sort of militant mission. And all of this sounds like more tiny little details that is not within the scope, but actually that can be exhausting as well. I do miss the anonymity sometimes, the anonymity of campaigning or on a broader level, I, I guess, yeah. But at the same time, within that, community I feel like I've found something that I hadn't had before 
and had been looking for in, in various in various places. So yeah, so I was going to ask everybody else just. It's basically like, do you feel this too? Um, but it's, it's that idea of overwhelm and oversaturation within the internet, knowing that we need to do something, feeling miserable about the state of affairs. I don't think there's anybody who could open up whatever way they get their news in in the morning. And I really should stop making that Twitter. It's a horrendous way to start your day. But I don't know. I mean, is there anybody who can wake up, take in what's happening in the world every morning and feel like a there's a way of making a positive change. Have you have you got strategies around that for you and for the change that you want to make? Honestly, no, I've not cracked it yet. <laughs> I would really like somebody to tell me what the answer is. <laughs> um, that idea of feeling overwhelmed and like paralysed by everything happening, I definitely feel that. Um, and especially around like the pandemic, um, I took a break from social media in terms of just not scrolling through things, and that was really helpful. But I realised I replaced it with. Uh, TikTok and I replaced it with but in my head I think that's okay because it's just animal videos mostly on TikTok <laughs> and it feels more like safer <laughs> so that's that's one recommendation replace your scrolling on on Instagram and Twitter or whatever with animal videos and you'll feel so much better um but but yeah I, I don't know what the answer is to to just getting over that feeling of being overwhelmed um but reading your provocation listening to um I did, it did make me think, well, maybe I should do more things on a much more local level in my neighbourhood, in my community, because I don't, I don't do any of that. Maybe that would make me feel like, you know, I was, I was getting involved and getting engaged in things, but in a way that isn't so overwhelming and so out of my, feels like it's out of my reach. I think for me, so I have Instagram because I love, I love pets and I'm also a mad Celtic history and language buff. So I watched like kind of like Word of the Day and Irish and Manx and all that. So I've all, I've kept that and I've kept Pinterest basically for similar hobbies that I don't have time for. Um, but I don't have Twitter and I don't have Facebook and I don't read the news. And it's it's um it's not that I'm not a political person. It's not that I'm not active. It it's just that it was actually eating into any agency that I did have. And I started to think this is actually poisoning the well so much for me that I couldn't clearly see where I could make a difference. Um, maybe there's a bit of nihilism in that. Maybe looking at you know things like climate justice and things like that and going, well, actually, I don't have a stake in this. It's so big. It might sound defeatist, but it's not if you can start from the bottom and... I think that social media is not useful to a protest movement, if I'm honest. I think that it identifies key movers in that to the state, which to me is just, that makes no sense. But also it's it's too it's too open for nitpicking and kind of, so yeah, I would be like, if you want to clear your head of that, just do it. And also the fact that people think it retweets activism as well. Like I feel like they've done it. Quite a lot of that, isn't there? I think also um, after the Iraq war, going on that march and it making no difference, yeah. I just realised a lot of the stuff that we think is activism is actually just a way of keeping middle class people busy. Do you know what I mean? It's not really changing anything. This is just, we're all just getting together and, you know, saying to each other, we're brilliant, aren't we? You know, this isn't, isn't this brilliant? Do you know what I mean? And, uh, Actually, are you going to make it? And that thing about being overwhelmed, I came off Twitter and um, uh, I freed up so much time. It's brilliant. 
an emotional energy. Do you know what I mean? Which so it makes me think again about marching that it wasn't really making any difference. That I mean, I quite like Twitter to be honest because I muted almost everybody, and it was all animal videos and funny jokes. Because some of the jokes on that were absolutely brilliant. But I just thought I'm going to end up at, basically at Elon Musk's work. I don't want. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? And um, uh, but that thing about being overwhelmed first thing in the morning. Basically, um, I was looking after my mum for about two and a half years during COVID because she was dying. And so what I would do was I would not check in with her for the first half hour after I woke up. I would go for a run. I would take the dog out. I would do something good for my mental health. And that's become a habit. And that's a great habit to get into. Think about things that you like in your life. Think about what you can do that's actually useful. You've only got two hands. Do you know what I mean? You don't, if you don't have a Learjet, you're probably not the problem in climate change to be honest, right? Calm down about it. Do what you can in front of you. But I think there are a lot of things that are really paralysing the scope of things, the the sense that you're not making any difference. But actually, it's the, what's important is we keep striving and we keep seeing those fake things that are not going to really make any difference to the world. But, you know, just I think the striving is the thing that makes the difference, but we're probably all fucked. So. <laughs> I do, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely someone I think that small changes. I like that idea about what you can see in front of you. And I think these things have, I mean, I do believe in that ripple effect. That leads us nicely to talking about our success episode, actually, because in a big part of that episode, we were trying to redefine, rethink about what success means, trying to re make it work for us in a different way and deconstruct it. And Arusa, you shared our, quite a tender and quite personal piece of writing about your journey from achieving and then losing your dream job as many other people other people did during the pandemic um, and you also talked about how the prompt from us to write about success made you instantly think of your failures and you were questioning that do you think are we at risk of kind of selling ourselves short a little bit if we do deconstruct success too much if we redefine it do we risk undervaluing ourselves actually do you think I think yes, in a way. Um, and since the, the, that event and since the podcast was recorded, I've been thinking a lot about how just generally as women, we, we really do diminish success. We don't allow ourselves to, to be successful or when, and certainly in my case, like when something good happens, I don't shout about it as much as I maybe should uh, because I feel like I'm annoying people. <laughs> but why? You know, you should be happy with your successes. Whereas when it comes to failure and when I fail at something I feel like I'm more inclined to share that isn't that weird and I don't know why that is yeah it, it's a really interesting question and then yeah we we notice it a lot like if it feels like you have to get out in front of it somehow don't you, you have to kind of like oh I'm terrible at this yeah. before before someone else points it out to you somehow I just feel that pride comes before a fall is always in my head whenever I feel good about myself I'm just wait just wait yeah it is that like oh no what's going to happen now this good thing's happened what does that what does that mean and that, that's always been the case for me all my life. And I don't think any one person has made me feel like that. It's just just the way it is. And I think a lot of women probably would agree that they feel the same way. Absolutely. What's the, What's the question you brought for the gang? Yeah, so I guess this question was more specific to recent times, but I wanted to ask everyone how their definition of success has changed since the start of COVID in particular. And if so, what what's happened to foster that change? It was a great break for me because I suddenly realised because I, I was like I was like doing so much and then I re and I knew that it wasn't sustainable, and it made me really slow down and it made me think I'm 56. Do I really want to be going off for like 24 hours in 
Reims in France, where no one really knows who I am and I don't really know why I'm there. Do you know what I mean? It really made me slow down and it really made me think I want to be more um, present in my life and less trying to do things in case I miss out. On, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel less seen. I think a lot of us felt less seen. I don't know. Did you feel less seen? Yeah, I think definitely agree with you in that I was reaching a point where I felt like everything was a bit too much for sure and there was that break that sense of a break and a feeling like you could kind of sit back and just reevaluate things but I think just in terms of this, like theme of success in particular I think losing a job during that period was really weirdly beneficial for me to to really start again almost or really just stop and just be like hey you know I, I'm not thinking about things like work the right way at all because I think I feel like I made work like a kind of personality trait and it was my entire life and I feel like I've spoken to other people that have said the same thing where before COVID it's just a different way we've kind of viewed work and I feel a lot more at peace with how I how I think about work now compared to before before COVID for sure. It's funny that isn't it that I, I don't even know if it's a gender thing or a capitalism thing but we see success only if we've completely martyred ourselves for it, <laughs> you know, like you, to your absolute. So almost could, like when this thing is taken away from you, from this thing that's just outset, you realise that oh, it wasn't that successful at all. Not for me. I could really relate when you're saying oh, I, I found it as a, a part of my identity and I wasn't viewing it right and I had to put the brake on to see that. I don't know why that is, but oh, I think we're probably in the room of all that. I lived it. in London in the 80s and people would, if you said to them, when they introduced themselves, they would tell you what they did for a job. And in Glasgow, because in, like when I moved here in 84, nobody, it was like unemployment was really, really bad. So people introduced themselves in different ways. So they would not tell you what they did for a living or they would say, this is what I do for a living, but they wouldn't say, I am a lawyer. They would say, I work as a lawyer or a to trade, I'm a lawyer. Do you know what I mean? It was like a totally different way of identifying. I thought that was fantastic. And they would tell you what they were interested in as their identity. Or they would tell you what activism they were involved in as their identity. Sometimes they would tell you about their religion as an identity. And, uh, um, I, I, and you know, and I see us moving away from that as a measure of success. It's like you become subsumed by your professional position you know I like that and I think we should be moving away from that I like the idea of you know introducing yourself but not talking about your work saying hi I'm Arusa and I've got a cat you know that's how I want people to know me there's there's a different thing though as as a writer it took me a long time to say actually say I'm a writer I still don't sometimes I just dodge the I'm, I'm a really bad one for chatting to taxi drivers and half the time if the conversation comes round to me I just say oh I do such and such or such and such take a job from my past but I don't do a journalist either because that's another kettle of fish that you don't want to open up with a taxi driver and um, yeah so I'll just like pick one of the jobs that I've done I've done loads of them and just concentrate on that a wee bit rather than say writer because I'm embarrassed about it I think I don't want to seem successful this is a, a difficult question for me because actually 2020 and 2021 were my most professionally successful years ever and I had a book out that actually hit quite big um, not financially successful but um, professionally successful so it's quite difficult in terms of I've been reframing my life around I need to create more writing time and also still have money coming in and my children are older now and against that sort of 
spending time at home, unable to move anywhere, just going for walks in nature really simplified everything else down a bit, which is odd seeing as I was just banging on about overwhelm there. But, um, so if you think, if that, that success had come at a time when it was more like normal in air, quote, air quotes and it was more now, do you think things would be very different for you? You'd feel differently? I don't know if the book would have been as successful in a different time. I really, really benefited from everybody having more time to read just at the point that my book came out and that I was able to do Zooms. I did like 80 Zoom book groups over a year. So I was kind of more visible and more accessible than I would be able to be in a traditional setting where I'd have to be travelling up and down the country looking after childcare, looking, you know, um, leaving leaving my kids, that sort of thing. And I waited for quite a while to see if I was going to be able to get away with not answering that question because I'm embarrassed about it. There is a sort of instinct, and I think it's probably female and probably Scottish, to not want to shout about it as well. The other thing that I was thinking of when I was listening to years, though, is for years I worked at The Arches and that was founded by Andy Arnold. And when I started work there, he said, right, this place is about giving people the right to fail. You don't just spring fully formed into your amazing Oscar winning movie or whatever. You've got to have a space where you can do absolute shite and work out what does work and what doesn't. And in, in order to make any sort of art, you need that. You can't have an automatically successful, amazing piece of work without failures, whether they're just happening in your own head as you're working out something or, you know, learning from those failures in order to work out what works. It feels like, because this kind of feels like we should lead on to the home question, because kind of, that was the other thing that happened through the pandemic, wasn't it? That we all were in our homes and Carrie's provocation about, I love the idea about when you became home, like when she physically became home, but but also the the healing power and finding home and reclaiming home or and, and what home means. And I suppose the kind of what I was quite interested in posing to the group was the idea is how is your relationship to home and the idea of home changed you know, through your life, but maybe particularly we could relate that back to how that's changed through the pandemic as well. So I kind of offering that to you all to sort of think about. I think it's it's been a bit of a difficult one for me because during COVID I was shielding, so I was at home and not leaving the house for a very long time. And I did definitely lose my mind a little bit as the home became not a place of comfort necessarily. It became this kind of prison basically that I couldn't I wasn't allowed to leave. And um, you know, I'm very fortunate that I do live with my partner and our cat and you know, I had I wasn't by myself, but it just felt like I was stuck. And even coming out of out of that when you were allowed to do things again and now that things are, you know, normal as whatever normal is, um, I still view home sometimes in that kind of prison way, which is horrible. And I don't want to view it like that. And also uh, we we're in a one bedroom flat, so I was working in the living room in basically just working, sleeping, eating in the same place. And I don't think that's healthy. Actually, just recently, I, I've got an office space and it has changed my life because I just now, only only now, have started to view home as home again and not home as somewhere that I work as well. And it's been so healthy for me um, to just have a space that I can have that separation. I um, was part of an amazing project through Edinburgh Book Festival, the kind of Outriders thing. Myself and another poet, Kieran Hodgers, uh, when we were to look at borders and um, 
we decided to compare Poland and Ireland in terms of economic migration. So we went to Poland and then we went to Ireland. He's from Drogheda. So we went to Belfast and then Drogheda and then we went across to Ackle and Mayo, where my family were originally from. Although that didn't go entirely to plan, but I'll not bore you with that. And um, I was not prepared for, because I thought, oh, you know, you just go to these places and you learn a wee bit. And it was actually, when you talk about home, it was like a encompassing experience. Like I remember... Uh, we went hill walking up Sleeve Moor on the island and you know there's a deserted village a famine village and then you go round the back and there's like all the kind of potato tracks that have been empty since the kind of great hunger and I just felt this weird sensation and overwhelming loss because that's why I'm in Glasgow in a kind of odd way but also finally being alright just you've got this answer, you've got, and it's not to say that Ackle Island's my home, it's not, although I would love it to be. By the way, if anybody ever wants to give me a barn or something to write in for the, for the winter. But it was just like, you realise actually, they say that like wherever home's where you hang your coat or whatever, it's not, it's where you actually feel whole. You know, and sometimes you need to reach out a wee bit. So maybe a wee bit when people talk about, oh, I felt lockdown was really oppressive because I couldn't leave. You couldn't branch the way you had to, to get your answers. I think if you're from a diaspora, there is, home is a yearning. It's not a certainty. And most of us are from a diaspora of some kind, you know. And, you know, it is about a, a place that you yearn to be. And with... With lockdown, I think what a lot of us experienced was the sense that 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 awareness that home is something that you yearn for, it's a sense of belonging or a sense of absolute or certainty, and there isn't any certainty, and it's what's really uncomfortable is that that's home. Home is uncertainty, and you have to just embrace that, and you have to say. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know if the roof is going to hold. I don't know if the neighbours are going to change. I don't. It's just, just this is the uncertainty, and you have to hold yourself in it. It's like being sad. The way to deal with being sad is just sit and be sad, and the way to deal with home is just to sit and be uncertain. I think about where you are and just embrace that. And this idea, I was thinking as well when you were talking about like the industrial revolution and about how cities offered women freedom, and it felt to me there was something in COVID where we were. You know, I, I, you know, I'd spent a long time being at home with the kids, and I'd finally got out in the world, and suddenly I was back at home, and I felt like a lot of women I knew were felt like suddenly we were kind of returned to home, and we were overwhelmed with housework, and you were having meetings with women with kids where they would always be distracted, you know, like there would always be children running around behind, and they couldn't be fully. It felt like we'd something had been taken away, or there was something again. And we're home, and it just struck me that when you were talking about the industrial revolution, there was, I don't know if you'd if that feels relevant to talk about, but that idea of home and what that means, that home is a place of work. I really related to what you were saying about the idea of getting an office and getting yeah. like a space. I tried to take over a dishes shop during the pandemic and make it into a community co-working space, but I'm terrible at running a business. I have no head for it whatsoever. Um, and then, yeah, uh, just because I needed a space that was not my home in order to be a writer, I can't write. You know, there's mess everywhere. There's toys everywhere. There's half-eaten bits of toast. And, you know, I can't do that at home. I need to separate myself out and go somewhere else, even if it's a cafe with really loud music blaring in my earphones. I was thinking about the idea of the 
diaspora though because my first job when I was 16 I was a chambermaid in an Edinburgh guest house that only placed one advert a year and it was in the Mackenzie clan um, diaspora um, whatever they had like news, news sheet or whatever so it target itself almost exclusively at Mackenzie at Americans who were coming back to trace their Mackenzie heritage and we had to wear Mackenzie tartan scrunchies and Mackenzie tartan waistcoats and all the, the carpets were Mackenzie tartan as well and if anybody asked we had to say we were of the Mackenzie clan and it was just it was so weird I would have these conversations every morning with these Americans who thought that they had come home now, even though it was this completely manufactured place, they all used that word home, visiting the old country, coming home, and that, that kind of idea of this sort of home as a, a place. It was weird to me because I haven't got any sort of sense of that. My dad's family are actually Irish Catholics who settled in Scotland, but they're not in my life at all. And my mum's family are very atrophied and don't really keep in touch. So I grew up without that big family thing. So it was strange to me to have these people coming over with this idea of their own heritage in their heads that they could recreate and using that word home for it as well. What does it mean? It's so funny, isn't it? The belonging and it's not an identity and it's a physical place people are look, we're all looking for. Yeah, I mean, for me, if I'm really honest about it, it was probably about looking for that belonging in the wrong places. Um, to go back to what we were talking about earlier I probably feel like I don't belong it's it's not really because of my Irish heritage I'm Glaswegian we all have that (laughs) you know it's not that's not the thing that sets me apart Um, but maybe I was looking for I'd been working with the Galgale Trust um, for a while before we went and a lot of their work is kind of about generational trauma in Glasgow they kind of link it to the Highland clearances and kind of not being connected with the land and then I started to think well maybe that is part of it but I think the truth is maybe it was just trying to fill a hole that was possibly caused during Covid for the plates dropping and I'd been working so hard I didn't know who I was anymore and I thought, well, I'm going to Mayo <laughs> to find out. And I kind of did, but I didn't find what I thought I was going to find because, like you say, it's not a real place. But it's such a lovely urge. It's such a beautiful urge to find a place that's safe and certain. That's a beautiful thing to want. I find this this all this is all really interesting because, especially what you're saying about trying to like find somewhere, because I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I get, I think going back to that Kristen story as well about... Uh, working in the the Mackenzie trying to be a Mackenzie or whatever it was (laughs) yeah I've I've never been to India my dad was born there and he's been quite sick recently and especially over kind of Covid that idea of yearning that you're saying Denise I felt that but I wasn't really ever sure why I felt that but I think it's because he is he has been sick and I've never been to his home which is my technically motherland my home I just I feel like a lot of regret that I haven't done that and there there is a sense of yearning because it's a sense of wanting to connect with my family and my dad and I don't know if that will ever really go away and I wonder if that happens at a certain age you know for example if your parents are from somewhere else and they are getting older if that happens at a point where you think oh I really regret not I don't know traveling or seeing what it was like when they were growing up. But in America, they have a much better attitude to that kind of identity. You know, Greek-American, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, they they have this kind of recognition that there are a multiplicity of identities. But for some reason within Europe, we have this thing of you have to choose the country and you're only allowed one identity, which isn't true of any of us. 
we all inhabit a multiplicity of identities and we all, you know, bring those things. Do you know what I mean? And and the idea that it could be monolithic or it needs to be monolithic. And I think well I, and I think this going back to the idea of home, what's this idea that we create home and I think when Kerry's piece was that that longing for home a lot of what she was talking about was a yearning for home and spending her life yearning for home and then when she became like physically became home when she became pregnant and then making a home as a mother there was something in there that that felt healing I think when I was listening to it and and that resonated with me the idea that actually as you when you start to make a home or or you become home for someone else that some of that yearning some of it seems to sort of dissipate or and I wondered in the pandemic because we were so kind of at home and though that was stressful and we we're doing the, the work and everything else there was something about having control and and I definitely felt less yearning for finding something and trying to belong somewhere because I could create my own belonging you know by my own four walls so I, I did think that yeah Kerry really touches on that idea and it's such an incredible um, piece of writing that she did for that it feels like we've we've come to the end and I'm going to pass on to to Caitlin to kind of close us out I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what um I love I love what you've said there Denise about that longing being a beautiful feeling and and searching for a place to belong. Maybe that is some sort of lifelong journey and I I mean just personally I guess doing this podcast and connecting with the great artists that we have the things that people have said everything that um, you've all shared I guess has been a big part of my own sense of finding belonging finding my people and understanding myself and, and ourselves so thank you all so much for being here today and for starting off 2023 with a great discussion I hope you have loads more Coinscast will be back later in the year with season 2 please look out for that and in the meantime thank you for listening and take care yeah, take care of yourselves this episode of Quinescast is created and presented by Hannah Lavery and Caitlin Skinner featuring discussion with Denise Miner Victoria McNulty Kirsten Ennis and Arusa Kreshi editor Helena Rafai project producer Barbara Lyon recorded at podcast studio Glasgow Coinscast image by Julia Francis Dugan. Coinscast is possible because of funding from Creative Scotland and support from our partners, the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh International Book Festival and Jupiter Rising at Jupiter Artland. The Stella Quines team are General Manager Barbie Lyon, Associate Director of Engagement Beth Godfrey, Artistic Director and CEO Caitlin Skinner, Company Administrator and Young Quines Producer Erin McGee, Head of Audiences and Communications Sarah Marie Mooney. If you want to keep up to date with all things Quines, please visit our website and sign up for the newsletter. We are Stellar Quines because of the many people who've supported us over the years. This year will see us reach our 30th year of asking for better representation and equality, and we still have a long way to go. We need your support and sponsorship to help us keep that work going. Please get in touch via stellarquines.co.uk if you can help support our future. 